Hi, I'm Lori Denning, and welcome to my podcast, The 20-Minute Scriptorian, where I explore the LDS scriptures and the path of the disciple of Christ. I'm a longtime gospel doctrine teacher, sometime institute and seminary teacher, and a current theology student. My friends and I are often discussing history, context, and theology, and thought that you might appreciate it too. I think of it as a bridge between academic and inspiration. However, these opinions are my own and not an official representation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks again for listening, and I hope this will be a blessing to you on the road to discipleship. Welcome back, Scriptorians. Today we're going to head up the latter half of this week's lesson, which we are hitting chapter 18 and 19 of Acts. Now, we left off around 15-16 in our last episode, and we are going to answer a really great question today, which is, maybe not a question, but we are going to find out who is the most influential person you've probably never heard about in the New Testament. Who was this person, and why don't we talk about him? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, let's remember where we were, as always. Take a step back, take a step back, and there are some really fascinating things that we're going to hit, and I've actually chosen not to cover. I know, super weird. We talked about uh, Paul's, uh, we didn't really talk about Paul's first missionary journey, but we ended up in a second missionary journey. And today we're going to hit the second missionary journey and the third. And there's kind of no transition, you don't really realize it. But Paul is going all over the eastern Mediterranean, so parts of Turkey, Greece, back to Jerusalem, and then back to these uh, churches that he has begun, and he's visiting them again, and he's spending years there. And so we are going to hit that part. Now, what is this thing I'm not going to cover and why? There is a famous speech of Paul. He gets run out of town uh, in one of the other towns and he ends up in Athens, the very famous Athens. It's lost a little of its grandeur over the years, but it is still the center of Greek philosophical thought, art, uh, just the highest pinnacle of, of so much of the Greek culture is still in Athens. And he hands down there and he sees all these different uh, gods and goddesses that are being worshipped, but also that's where we see all the philosophical thoughts. So he meets the Epicureans, the Stoics. They're kind of the two ends of the spectrum. There are so many different philosophical houses at the time. And he gives his famous speech to, to the unknown God and declaring Christ to them. Now that is, it's a classic and it may be very, very, may be the very best part of Acts, but I'm not going to cover it. I'm not going to cover it because I think it's as awesome as it is, it's covered everywhere it's very accessible so it's something you've probably heard or you kind of remember and it's really easy to get to so i wanted to leave that to others and say hey go jump in and it's fantastic it's worth your study i do love it it's a great speech however i want to cover something else because there are all these great stories that we don't cover and they are absolutely fascinating and if you'll that'll be our first section we'll hit um this person that i was mentioning and then I want to do a little bit of a personal application that will tell you a bit more about why this affected me so much this time. All right? So let's open your scripture, Scriptorians, to Acts 18. And we're going to change stories here for a minute. We're going to leave Paul. So we're getting on Paul's missionary journeys. And we're going to leave him for a second. He's going to enter the story again. So in, in Acts 18, we show up in about 24 and we're introduced to somebody. So turn there now, Acts 18 verse 24 and we're going to also do the beginning of 19 so just keep your finger there in the bible keep your scriptures on or just listen up and a certain jew named apollos born at alexandria an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to ephesus 
Okay, there's a lot packed in that scripture. Let's unpack it a little bit. It'll make a lot more sense. Uh, Apollos. Apollos is named after the god Apollo, so a super Greek name, but it tells us he's a Jew, and he was born in Alexandria. Alexandria is a Greek city in Egypt, and it's uh, a, a very large, you hear about the Alexandrian Library. Uh, you, this is where Alex, Alexander the Great, he, Alexander the Great named everything after himself, so there are like 20 Alexandrias, but it was there. Uh, the famous lighthouse, all these things that are there in Alexandria. But there was a huge Jewish population after the diaspora. One of the big settlements is here, and it, and it remains this way um, for quite a long time. Additionally, we think, some scholars think, that a lot of the followers of John the Baptist ended up uh, kind of landing there in Alexandria. Maybe, maybe not, but it'll maybe be interesting in a minute. Another thing that pops up about this Apollos, although he was Jewish, um, that should jump out. I mentioned all this Greek stuff, but he's Jewish. And he was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. So here was someone who knew his Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet, remember? So he knew his, his Torah. He knew the Bible. And he was good at speaking. That's going to be important to remember about him. And he shows up to a town called Ephesus. We That might sound familiar to you. Ephesus is in eastern, I'm sorry, western Turkey. And it is a really big city, one of the major metropolitan areas. And it's where we hear about the letter to the Ephesians. It's because they live in Ephesus. And Ephesus has a huge temple, which is famous for its worship to the Greek goddess Artemis, Roman, they called her, uh, uh, Artemis, Roman, Diana, Greek. I got that backwards. But there you go. And it's a famous, famous place. In fact, it was one of the wonders of the world. Now this temple there to Deanna or Artemis, as she's also called, is really unique because it's mostly populated by female priestesses because they're worshiping Artemis. So that will come in play not only here, but in a couple other epistles of some, some background, but that's where he lands. So while he's from Alexandria, he ends up in Ephesus. And remember, he's a good speaker and he knows the scriptures. Then it says, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord. So he, he understood, he understood, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Now, we're not exactly sure about this. Scholars are, are a little bit divided on this, but what we do know is that John the Baptist had a huge following, if you remember. And so people were flocking to him, and this new revival of kind of a spirituality and baptism, and and remember, even he says, you know, I must diminish so that he may grow. So his followers have to, are going to go to Christ. He sends him his, his way. He's the forerunner. But the following of, of John the Baptist's followers are, are huge. It's a huge following, a huge discipleship of kind of following him as a, a rabbi and a teacher. And in fact, they continue to this day, at least some claim to be, the Mandeans claim to be a group that are still current, maybe only 60 or 70,000 of them. Most of them live in Mesopotamia, where Iran and Iraq kind of meets, and they follow John the Baptist, but still believe their main ritual is baptism. Now, a lot of the other stuff is is very different, but, but an interesting group of people still springing out of uh, John the Baptist, these followers. So it seems like Apollos is a guy who, while Jewish, uh, is following this John the Baptist um, following, at least had been baptized, and it says he's full of the Spirit. Now, we know in a minute he doesn't have the gift of the Holy Ghost, but he feels the Spirit. So keep going. Interesting, though. Okay. 26. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Whom then 
Aquila and Priscilla had heard. They took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Who are these other guys? These other guys pop in, and, and I'm sure I'm butchering their names, but don't worry about it. We're, I'm sure we're not saying them right anyway, but Aquila and Priscilla are a husband and wife pair. We learn about them elsewhere, but we learn that they are Jewish as well, uh, Jewish Christians, and they are kicked out of Rome. When the emperor is driving at some problems with the Christians there or blaming them, they push them out of Rome, and these guys land here in Ephesus, and they hear him preaching in the synagogue. So much like Paul, uh, they go to the Jewish people, use the scriptures, and then say, hey, the Messiah is here in Jesus. And so they hear him speaking and say, boy, this guy is so close, but he's missing a few things. So this power couple, this power couple takes and teaches Apollos, it says, the, uh, the, the way, the way of God more perfectly. Now, a couple things I love about that. We hear... Who are, who are these guys? Where did they hear the scriptures? Where are they? How did they become converted and so strong? But I love that it's a missionary couple. That is great. And so much like we do today, isn't it? We're all using our skills and we're all using our talents and our gifts and we are using them in the kingdom. Another thing that's always kind of interesting is they don't correct him in public, right? They take him aside. Uh, he clearly was a great speaker. He clearly was very charismatic and they teach him more perfectly. And then when he was disposed, I'm in verse 27, when he, being Apollos, was disposed to pass into Achaia. That's kind of Greek, just Greece, the name for Greece. So when he's sending over to Greece, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had received, uh, which believed through grace. So they send kind of a letter of recommendation and say, hey, Apollos is coming and you can go ahead and believe him. For he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Wow. So here's a guy who, who's so close from John the Baptist and then from this missionary couple is converted. Now here's why he's the guy you haven't probably heard of that is one of, he's, this is the guy that is the most influential. He ends up going to Greece and he ends up in Corinth. And Corinth is kind of the Las Vegas of the day. And, and so he goes over there and he teaches and we hear Paul reference him. He becomes a huge leader, very humble man though. Uh, because he had a huge following there. He's very charismatic, great speaker, great teacher. And there were some disputations and some issues in the future over in Corinth, and Paul writes to correct them. And he mentions this Apollo. So Apollos is one of these guys that, that is such a great teacher that he grows the church in Corinth. And so he is one of these unsung heroes for being a great missionary, a great teacher, and being a convert grows the church in Greece. And so Apollos is great. Now, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. So we keep reading really quickly, just a few more verses in 19, and we see another trend similar to this baptism of John happening again. So keep going in verse 19. It gets better. It says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, oh, back to Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he sent unto them, so some, there's some other disciples there in Ephesus, and he says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be a, any Holy Ghost. And then he said unto them, uh, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. And then, and then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands 
upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. So there, Paul comes across these twelve, back in Ephesus, comes across these twelve guys, and they are believers, and yet, he, when he asks them, well, have you ever had the Holy Ghost come upon you? They're like, we've never even heard of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> we've never even heard of the Holy Ghost. And so he says, well, what then what were you baptized to? Baptism of John. And then he tells them there is a greater baptism. I think there's a lot to unpack here. Let's try to unpack a few things. First, isn't it interesting that both Apollos and these 12 disciples have only been baptized in the baptism of John, but they are missing the other ordinance and that ordinance of the gift of the Holy Ghost. So a couple things that I find interesting there are that kind of like today with other uh, Christian religions and groups and sects and beliefs that sometimes we don't always get the whole story or they're unclear. We took the restoration to be clear that we needed the ordinances uh, and covenants of the gospel and there's the fourth article of faith, right? But yet they there was a confusion. So while there was baptism of John, they were missing the gift of the Holy Ghost. But did you catch with Apollos, it says that he was mighty in the spirit. So he was a great speaker. He clearly had the spirit working through him, but he didn't have the gift of the Holy Ghost, right? And that's the same thing that these guys are saying. Now, this baptism of John, do you think things that I think could happen here? And I don't know if it matters, but it's interesting to, to poke at for a second. Do you think the baptism of, are they saying the baptism of John, there had to be another baptism after that? Meaning that was just for repentance, but we had to be baptized again as members of the church and in the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's one option. The second option is, is he just talking about the baptism of fire? That while you had a baptism by immersion for repentance and the remission of sins, there was still missing the confirmation, right? The gift of the Holy Ghost had to be done. And you can definitely see that that step is in there when it said in verse six that Paul laid his hands upon them and the Holy Ghost then came upon them. So it could, some, some scholars believe that they had to have another baptism. They were missing authority. And some scholars believe that they were just talking about the gift of the Holy Ghost. Um, I, I, you can, I don't know. It's whatever you think, I suppose. We're not super clear on here, but I think it's just the gift of the Holy Ghost. I don't think they had to have another baptism if it was by authority of John the Baptist. Um, obviously, then Christ would have had been rebaptized. But I think they're pointing out the importance of the the covenants and ordinances and specifically the the ordinance of the gift of the holy ghost here in fact they hadn't even really heard about it they were like we're really aware of this baptism thing but we are unaware of this piece so fascinating that as the church grew that sometimes they had to make corrections and sometimes there were disputations and sometimes there were uh, divisions or misunderstandings and they had to be corrected here's another thing i wanted to share with you for a minute now some of you know i have I'm older, I don't work in theology or in education. I'm not even an educator by trade, uh, although I've taught an institute and things. I um, have returned to school and I'm doing a theology degree. Well, we don't have a theology degree at BYU or a church-based school, so I have chosen to go to different school. And where I chose to go is, is an evangelical. Uh, uh, that's kind of the belief that they have there because it's very scripturally sound, but they are believers. And I had a great mentor that went there. And so I have gone to a school out in Oregon and I'm doing my theology degree. And one thing that really stands out at me, Scriptorians, that's different and how blessed we are. I love them, by the way. I love my evangelical teachers and 
They've been very accepting of me being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, I, evangelicals and, and the saints have not always gotten along, but they've been very, very welcoming and kind of accepting of me, uh, and I love them. But one thing I found coming from kind of seeing their perspective more is that as we read these scriptures, they don't really always know what all of this means. They kind of gloss over it, or they get just kind of odd, I would say, odd in understandings they don't really know some believe in baptism some don't some believe baptism is just something you need to do but it's not salvific it doesn't save us uh, they don't obviously have a priesthood and the authority of the priesthood in fact they've kind of shunned it in most protestantism that was for catholics we left that behind it's all about the scriptures it's what you believe and the spirit comes on you and it's more about the spirit and it's just there's just this core clear thing that they wouldn't see here and how blessed we are in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ to say, hey, I understand the importance of these doctrines and I understand why we have these ordinances and covenants. But all right, do we? Ask yourself, why does it matter? Why, why does it matter? Why do we have to be baptized by one that have authority and have the gift of the Holy Ghost? And, be given to us also why we could say easily well because we were commanded to but okay but why why is it so important why is this a fundamental one of the principal ordinances of the gospel there's a great answer and i found it elder bednar elder bednar gave a talk not too long ago and there's just a very short clip and he talks about the importance of ordinances so let's go there see if you can listen to that it's just a minute hold on let me play that for you all right, here we go. The risen Lord next explained the importance of coming unto him. The multitude gathered together at the temple was invited literally to come forth unto the Savior one by one, to feel the prints of the nails in the master's hands and feet, and to thrust their hands into his side. Each individual who had this experience did know of a surety and did bear record that it was he, even Jesus Christ, who had come. The Savior also taught the people to come unto him through sacred covenants, and he reminded them that they were the children of the covenant. He emphasized the eternal importance of the ordinances of baptism and of receiving the Holy Ghost. In a similar manner, you and I are admonished to turn toward and learn from Christ and to come unto him through the covenants and ordinances of his restored gospel. As we do so, we will eventually and ultimately come to know him in his own time and in his own way and according to his own will, as did the people in the land of Bountiful. Repenting and coming unto Christ through the covenants and ordinances of salvation are prerequisite to and a preparation for being sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost and standing spotless before God at the last day. So did you catch it? That to come unto Christ, we participate in these ordinance and ordinances and covenants. That it is our witness to him in preparation for our sanctification to be more like him, to meet him. Wow, so powerful that these ordinances are how we come unto Christ. That's it, Scriptorians. 
Good luck with Acts this week. Uh, next week, we'll be jumping into chapter 20 and heading back to Jerusalem. Keep on reading.